Welcome to CEO On The Go, the show about personal and professional growth for busy leaders like you. I'm your host, Gail Lance, and together we'll be exploring the people side of leadership. You'll learn how to better engage and inspire those around you and yourself. So let's get started. Welcome to this special episode. I hope you're doing well. It's rare to find a CEO who led a successful public company for 25 years and then later takes on the role of president and CEO of a small drug development company. And during that time in between, launched a successful podcast called Innovators on Tap and wrote a best-selling book called The Innovator Spirit. I'm talking about Chuck Swoboda. And before starting his latest business challenge, leading a company called Vast Therapeutics, Chuck was CEO of Cree, where he helped lead the company from $6 million to $1.6 billion in revenue as they started the LED lighting revolution that led to the obsolescence of traditional light bulbs. But what's even more rare or unusual about Chuck is his willingness to speak publicly about his experience at the top growing a large company and the toll it took on his own mental health in the process. And in case you don't know, this month, May, is Mental Health Awareness Month. Actually, I think every month should be, should be Mental Health Awareness Month. I thought it would be especially appropriate to hear what Chuck had to share. My previous episode was a little lighter look at what you can do when you feel like you're just a little off. The name of that episode is Getting a Grip When You Think You're Losing Your Mind, but sometimes you need to take a closer look at signs that could indicate something more serious is going on. You know, CEOs are not immune to the stress and anxiety that so many people are feeling. In fact, they often feel even more pressure to be strong for everyone else or to portray the, you know, I've got my act together image that they think people expect. So in our short conversation, Chuck and I talk about what leaders can do now to help their team focus on what's most important, insights about bridging silos. Um, Chuck also emphasizes the importance of acknowledging failure, among other issues. So I think you'll be inspired to make sure you're doing what you need to do to take care of yourself, too, so that you can be most successful in your leadership role and in your life. Of course, I think all episodes are good to share, but this is a great episode to share with a leader you know who might be feeling especially stressed. Enjoy my conversation with Chuck Swoboda. Chuck, welcome to CEO On The Go podcast. I'm really glad that we're here today. Uh, I'm so glad to be with you. Yeah, I know that we we talked, I guess, a few months ago, and it was just before you were starting your new role at Vast Therapeutics. And so I thought, logically, it makes sense to ask, how is that going? And, and what are some of the early lessons that you've learned in your new role as president and CEO? Yeah, you know, Gail, so, you know, I spent all those years running a public company, and it got larger and larger. And at the end, I think we had like 7,000 employees. So that was my last CEO experience. And then I walk away, take a break, write a book, do some other fun things. And I take another CEO job and I'm now employee 11. So I have a team of 10 uh, 10 people that work with me. And I will say it has been amazing. Uh, Some days a bit intimidating and uh, incredibly rejuvenating. And what do I mean by those things? So 
I was used to at my old job of been there so long from the early days, I kind of knew a little bit about everything, right? I had been in every job. So I could sit in any meeting and except for the most deep science conversations generally add value. And I show up at my new job surrounded by some of the most brilliant uh, chemists and microbiologists. And I wasn't even sure they were speaking English. And so it has taken me a few months to just even feel like I can keep up with the conversation. So that was a little intimidating for someone who had not done that in a long time. I think um, the energy and the enthusiasm, it's a group of people who are committed to a goal of, you know, we're trying to develop an alternative to antibiotics that will help cure the things that antibiotics don't work on. Like you talk about mission driven. So that part's just so rewarding. And I haven't had this much fun because I, I get to work on the real problems. You know, running a big public company is actually all about the paperwork and the lawyers. So I would say that, uh, you know, it's been an interesting experience. I am learning and I'm having to adapt my leadership style. So I get to be way more hands-on, which I love. I also have to realize that I can should listen a lot, but I don't want to come up with ideas faster than we can process them. In other words, we have a small team. And so holding myself accountable to making sure I stay focused so the team can stay focused has been really important. And uh, it's been a great experience. Yeah, setting that example, that's terrific. The thing that you have an advantage about is starting through a fresh lens. And I, you know, I was just reflecting on what your situation is and probably the need for a lot of leaders, CEOs, senior executives to pretend like they're starting over in new ways, given the pandemic coming out this this other side, kind of having to rethink everything. So you have the benefit of actually being in a, a real live new scenario. But I was just curious to know when you first started, what was the first step? And, and to any CEO or senior executive that's listening in, what would you suggest in terms of kind of looking at things through a fresh lens, where do you start? There's so much to conquer. There's such a big mountain in front of you. So what is the the starting point that you would suggest? So for about the first week or two, and it's a small team, I just listened. And I I participated in every discussion that the team was having. They're mostly virtual, right? Because it was during COVID. So I want to just listen and get a sense of the the framework of what's going on. And then I had 10 one-on-one meetings. And I sat down with everyone on the team, want to know who they are, what they think, but a little bit of pretty quickly starting to get an idea of the team, if you can build a relationship, will usually tell you what matters very quickly. You just got to go listen. Are you are you listening for anything in particular? Or you just, you just go in just with completely open mind, just kind of want to hear what's going on? What, what do you think's working? What do you not think's working? One of my favorite questions is, so I, and I said this to each person on the team, I said, look, I'm the new guy. You've been here longer than I have. If you were in my job, what's the one thing you would change? What's the one thing you would fix? And everyone has one of those things. And when you listen to, and and look, they're all different levels of the organization, but when you combine those things together, a couple of themes became really obvious. For a small team, we weren't great at communicating. And second, there was this, we're our company is part of a, there's actually two sister companies there. And although we sit in the same building, it was kind of like, I don't feel like I know what the other hand's doing. And so a lot of it was bridging communication gaps. The The other thing that became obvious is for a small team, they didn't actually, they were compartmentalized. Like I couldn't imagine how 10 people didn't know what everything was going on, but they were like three separate groups. They just did their things. And so part of what I encouraged them was, is 
you know, after I had those one-on-ones, I said, look, one of the things I'm going to ask you guys is you you all want to share more information, but yet I sit on your team meetings and nobody asks a question. And I said, if you're not curious enough to ask a question, then I'm not sure, how do you expect to get this information? So I started challenging him nicely at the beginning, kind of pushing him a little more. And the most I've done is just get people to share what they're thinking and their insights have guided me the most in the first three months of anything else. I'm helping implement some of them, but I'm really using their insights because look, they've been there. I think as leaders, we assume we're supposed to have the answers. I think what we're supposed to do is listen observe what's going on and sometimes just help the obvious things get done. Yeah, I would agree with that. How did you create that opportunity for them to really open up? Were they resistant at first? Did, is it, um, I've worked with a lot of organizations where it, har- it is hard going from kind of a siloed um, existence to not forcing, but encouraging people to come together. So how did you do it? What was the, the magic formula that helped that team come together in a new way? You know, so I think the first thing is to get, you know, so I came in as the guy that didn't know anything about the technology, but they all knew that I had run a successful public company. So there was this, uh, you know, what do we think? What's cool about this team is most of them have had, a couple of them have had a little bit of work experience, but a lot of them came out of academia. So they're not really, they, they don't have a lot of biases as like what's possible or what's not. There was a couple people I had to just say, hey, here, I need you to be really brutally honest with me. So I, I tried to figure out who was being open and not tease it out. And then frankly, I think part of what the leader has to do is make make it easy for people to give you feedback. So, you know, I tend to be very comfortable telling people, I don't know what I'm asking. Like, I, I know I don't know. Can you explain things to me? So a lot of it was quickly flipping the situation and letting people know, I know they're the experts. So tell me, right? And what's interesting is if you change that dynamic, even though you're the boss, you quickly start to get a different relationship. And I didn't do it for any reason other than I didn't know, right? So like it was a practical choice, but it's also one that changes that dynamic. And, and you know, one of my employees early on said, I said, what's the most important thing I can do? She, they said, would you just be present? Just be around so that if we have a random question or we kind of know, just help create that informal. So I'm the management by wandering around guy. Uh, the only thing I found is if I do that for eight hours straight, they get nothing done. So I have to kind of balance that. Yeah. When you when you landed in your new role and you started kind of assessing what's going on, what needs to change, where does innovation fit in? Because I know you've written a whole book about your innovator's journey. So you know, when is it time to talk about innovation? Is that something that just happens organically as a leader? What is your role in trying to kind of ignite that innovator spirit that you talk about? So I don't think we've ever talked about innovation since I got there, um, but that's what we do. And if you remember from the book, there's a little bit of it's something we never talked about. It's something we just did. And so, you know, I, I did spend a little time with the team at a high level before I joined. I did a little consulting just to make sure I thought I could add value. Um, and so, look, they're, they're working on a problem. So they're trying to take a molecule that's never been used as a drug before and turn it into a treatment that could be, you know, everything from nice to a miracle drug in the best case scenario. But in whatever round, they're already trying to do something really hard. And and so what I've done is we've not talked about innovation, but what we've talked about are what is the problem we're trying to solve? So 
I think the team was doing a lot of great science. They were definitely creating some incredible inventions. If anything, I've helped focus them on, so what is the exact problem here, right? So that's nice to know. If we were to get that answer, does it lead us to a problem or this is what we're trying to... So you know, in the early days, I kind of said, in a year, we want to end up at this point. So tell me what we're working on that gets us there and what we're working on that doesn't get us there. And and it starts to help create these very interesting conversations where the team starts to self-focus itself. In fact, they quickly started going, hey, why are we working on this? I don't know. I didn't ask you to work on it. They said, well, this is the wrong way. So a lot of this has not been about how do we think creatively or how do we solve problems? It's how do we pick the right problems to solve and then get very focused on doing that? So what I'd say is sometimes in a highly, this is a pure science organization, you can chase answers to questions that are interesting, but irrelevant to getting to the goal. And, and then the same problem, and then the second problem we had to work on was not problem. The opportunity was sometimes I think the best scientists are desperate to prove themselves right. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I'm a big fan, as you know, from the book of being unafraid of failure and trying to discover this idea of learning from it. And so And we're still working on this, but what are the experiments we're going to run that probably aren't going to work? Well, why would we do that? Because if we don't know what those boundaries are, I'm not sure we're learning enough. So we're doing that together. I am not at all. I'm good at asking the questions. I am not at all. I don't have enough background to know what that framework looks like in terms of specifics, but I think I can tease it out in terms of the questions. Right. And to your point, it almost doesn't matter. You don't have to know all of the nuances as long as you're keeping them oriented around the right problem, that that's one of one of the leader's most important roles to play. And so, and, and you touched on something uh, just this week, I was speaking with a client and they were expressing some concern that things were happening on their team that weren't being acknowledged as failures. They were just kind of brushed under the rug and then they're on to the next quote, bad decision. <laughs> and then the next one, because they're not stopping to acknowledge that for all kinds of reasons. So the question is, how do you get teams or people to become more comfortable acknowledging what's not working? And, and sometimes to even see things as failures or you know, learning opportunities. That's a work in progress. Um, we are working on it. Uh, it is, look, it's very hard for anyone, especially people who are trained in sciences. And, and you know, many of my many of the people on the team have PhDs. They are experts in their field. And so they value their expertise, their rightness. And I value our learning. And, and so we're working on it together. I would tell you there's no one magic. I think what you have to do is you have to create some situations where you get a failure and you manage what happens there differently. So one, you have to push the team to some places that you know they're going to fail. And then you have to take them through the process and the conversation of, look, I I get it. It didn't work. It's not that it didn't work or let's justify why it's okay. No, it just didn't work. What did we learn and how would we use that information going forward? And I would say that uh, that's a work in progress. I don't think that's a three-month project. I think that's you know, if we have this conversation in a year, I think we can fairly assess that because what we're asking people to do is change kind of some of their core beliefs about what's okay and what's not. I, this team, I have a ton of confidence in. They're just, they're so eager to get somewhere else. I think they'll get there relatively quickly. But if you come into an organization where for longer history, 
I think it can be way harder. And so I, it's something I'll keep my, in fact, we, uh, we have a new, we were interviewing for a new employee this week. And, uh, I asked them a question. And the only thing I really want to talk to about the scientists, I said, I want you to explain your biggest failure. And it gets uncomfortable. <laughs> and he's like, what? Like, and not what, but around. Yeah. you want me to talk about my big, yeah. I said, has anyone ever asked you that before? Nope. Said, is this uncomfortable? Yep. I said, that's okay. Let's keep talking about it. And so we, we spent 15 minutes on that. And one, it was important to get to know that person, but more importantly, that question also became clear to the rest of my team that that's what we're looking for. And so I think part of it's just over time, people see examples and go, oh, I get how we could use that information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. And to understand it really is for the greater good to acknowledge what's not working. And it helps you accelerate progress so much better too when, when you're um, calling it out. So. Gil, I, there's an old saying that you learn far more from failure than from success. And although we're all taught to only embrace success, it is so true. Um, and it's true whether you and I are, you know, managing organizations focused on innovation or, you know, I have a, a basketball coach friend of mine who, who's the coach of a, a division one team. And he goes, it's absolutely critical to building a team of 18 to 22 year olds, right? That's how they learn. Um, but at the highest levels, they've only ever had success. So it's really hard. Yeah, yeah. Good. Well, sounds like things are off to a good start for you. I, I wanted to shift gears a little bit because, um, as I had mentioned, May is Mental Health Awareness Month. And I know that you've been very candid speaking about your experience dealing with leadership stress in your previous role. Um, and I see relax up in your background there. I think I'm reading that correctly in your in your background. So I was just curious to know if you could speak to that and and let people listening in know kind of what what your story was and some warning signs and what you did and just any advice for, for leaders who are especially feeling the stress now. You know, I, I think that a lot of the leaders I'm dealing with, some are literally falling apart with these decisions that they're having to make the pressure uh, change happening so fast. So it's, it's a heavy load. Yeah. So rewind a little bit um, about three and a half years ago, I'm uh, running a public company turned 50. Everything's good. Uh, actually have one of those great physicals and they say, there's nothing wrong with you. In fact, I remember telling uh, at this physical that I don't even feel like I have stress anymore. I'm so used to it. A couple weeks later, uh, walking up the stairs at work, something goes wrong with my heart. Long story, I end up in the emergency room uh, in an ambulance uh, and I developed an irregular heartbeat that eventually I have to have surgery to correct. Um, the diagnosis was it was all from job stress. And so it's like, wow, I need to do something about it. So after the surgery, I thought I was going to get up a couple of days later and go to work and I couldn't leave my house. And I was afraid to do anything. And I had no idea what was going on. I'd never felt like this in my entire life and uh, called my doctor to come on in. And uh, quickly I was diagnosed with, um, it's called cumulative stress anxiety disorder. And essentially, I think in the old days, so if you go back to my parents' generation, it's probably what they called a nervous breakdown. Uh, we don't use that term anymore. But what happens is you can put your body under so much stress, it causes real health issues. And mental health issues and physical health issues are completely connected. And I, I think one of the most important things for those people out there suffering is, is that your mental health is your health. And, you know, as an engineer, I had to like have my doctor embarrass me into embracing this idea. 
I mean, I'm saying, no, no, I, we fixed my heart, but something's wrong with my head. I want to work on that other mental stuff. And he goes, and he asked me a question. He said, where's your head? I said, what's right here? He goes, no, is it, is it like part of your body? Uh-huh. Is there some reason you think that what happens in your brain and all the muscles and tissues and things that go on in there, is there some reason you think that muscle and tissue is not related to your health? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's all connected. He goes, <laughs> yeah, like it's really all connected. And, and so I went through a process of, uh, you know, essentially having to, uh, I went into therapy and I started taking some medication and I kept doing my job, but that's when I decided I was going to have to retire from Cree. And it took me about, uh, took us about six to eight months to find a new CEO. I worked through that. I was only able to work, you know, part-time hours, but I was able to work through it and uh, got very involved in learning what was causing it and, and what I could do about it. And the first thing I had to learn is that, uh, you know, when you suffer from mental health, specifically anxiety, you don't make it go away. You actually learn to embrace it. And saying embrace it makes no sense to someone who's never been through it. But essentially, as CEOs and leaders, we are taught to be in control of everything. And what, it, what I learned is that I might be responsible for running the business, but I'm not as in control of everything as I thought. And so it's been a long process. It's been three and a half years now. Um, you know, I felt much better after taking that break and doing other things. Um, I had to do things to manage my stress. So I actually took up yoga. I, I do yoga every day now for the, over three years. Uh, I actually meditate every day. And people say, well, what does that have to do? If you think about, for those out there who are thinking about this as a problem to manage, think about clenching your fists really tight all day long. If you do that for a couple of hours, your hands and are going to hurt, right? Well, when we're under stress, we are literally doing that. It might not be our hands. Some of us have stress in our different parts of our body. Sometimes it's headaches, clenching the jaw. That's the same thing. And so what I learned is that you have to give yourself breaks if you're going to work through it. So for someone who's, yes, you're fighting the battle every day, the, the one thing you can't do is say, well, tomorrow I'm going to take a break, but I'm just going to fight through it today. And so what I find is that every day I have to purposely man- put these breaks in. And, you know, Gail, I thought I could go back to work because I was feeling great and it wouldn't affect me. And uh, I've, had to re- I've had to recommit myself to those breaks in the last three months. It's uh, certainly not as stressful as running a public company. But when I found out it's me, like I'm a really intense guy, I get really into it. And so we, as leaders and people who are suffering from stress, the stress isn't actually being caused from those around you. It's being, it's being caused by you. Like you can choose to step away from it. And I would say to anyone who's going through this, you know, there's, if you have severe symptoms, it is incredibly treatable. And I would encourage people to reach out to someone and I would start with your medical health professional, but, uh, you know, I used both that and a psychologist. It was great for me, but, you know, we know that when it comes to anxiety, um, that only one third of the people in the country who have treatable anxiety, so that a, a doctor would tell you could be treated through either therapy or medication, only one third ever get treatment. And so uh, in Mental Health Month, what I would say is be aware of it. And then also thing is be aware of it in your employees. Um, I was probably not 
is good at acknowledging what other people were going through until I went through it myself. And so people say, why do I talk about it? Because of that, like I was, I was the Superman boss, right? I could do it. Why can't you do it? And the answer is we're all different. And, and, and if you want to get the best out of your best people, you're going to have to adapt. Good. Well, I so appreciate your perspective on that as a leader, because there is a lot of emphasis on putting in programs and helping employees. But I, I work behind the scenes with a lot of leaders and I see I see what they're going through. And I, I just appreciate your willingness to share your story and your, your advice. Gail, one last thought on that, just for the people, because you're working with leaders. So when I first was diagnosed with mental health, I decided I was going to tell my team at work. And because for the first month or two, I was they knew I'd had heart issues. So they really didn't know what was going on. I was there. I wasn't feeling great. And when I told someone on my team, a confidant that I was going to tell people, they told me not to say anything, that they weren't sure that the rest of the team would be as comfortable having a CEO who acknowledged suffering from an anxiety disorder. Interesting. And I think that's out there more than we think. And the reason I bring that up is that person had great intents and they're still a friend of intentions, but they're still a friend of mine. But I have to tell you, that is the that is just horrible advice. As a leader, the best leaders share who they are and all their challenges. And if anything, if you're suffering from this, finding a way to share it is the most powerful thing you can do as a leader, not the weakest thing. Yeah, I agree. People are looking for human connection and leaders and and everyone in the organization. So to model that, I think it's it's really good to do. Um, any final thoughts? I know we've covered uh, so much quickly in just a few minutes, but um, especially regarding your book, any final insights on what leaders should be thinking about as they're moving toward the future, trying to think more innovatively, holding themselves together? Yeah, you know what I'd say is a couple thoughts. One about the book. So as the book has sold more and more, it is. It was called the Innovator Spirit, and I think initially people thought it was just about innovation. I'm actually finding it's getting used much more as just kind of some leadership advice. Yes, it's about the innovation problem, but if you really listen to the pieces of advice, they're really about how to lead your team and some ideas. And so I think that's been really fun for me. So I've been doing a lot more conversations with people that aren't purely focused on innovation. So I think that's the the first thing. And that and the second thing is I, you know, I think COVID has stretched all of us. It has tested all of us. But and I just told this recently to a group of students that are getting ready to graduate from college. And I said, you know, you've gone through the last year and a half and you had what many would consider to be an unfair last 18 months of your college experience. And I'm sure you've suffered in certain ways. I am so much more excited to hire your generation than I've ever been because one of the most critical things in business are people that have resilience. And I can't give you resilience. You have to learn it. And so those college students are going to have something. They're going to have survived something at a young age. They're going to be better in some situations than the generation that came from. And it's not, they're not smarter. They've survived. And what I would say to those leaders out there is, yes, it's tough. And I'm sure things haven't gone as planned. But if you've made it through and found a way or adapted, whatever you've done, those skills, you have a gift that won't feel like one right now, but I guarantee you over the next five to 10 years, don't be afraid to reuse it because you know what I learned at Cree, our success was surviving failures and crises along the way. That was the story of our company. It wasn't all success. And 
so many leaders have been given that. And I know it sounds like it wasn't a gift, but I think they'll find it is longer term. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experience, your insights. I think there's so much that we can take in and learn from you. So I I want to let people know how they can get your book, The Innovator Spirit. They can find it on Amazon. Is that the best place? That's the best place to get it. Okay, good. Well, and I wish you success as you continue to learn and move your new business forward. I'll have to stay tuned and check in later on to see your new lessons. And um, I wish you the the most success with that. Well, thanks, Gail. And I wish you and all all the people listening a bunch of success in whatever they're doing. Uh, Just remember that uh, you can look at challenges as challenges or as opportunities. And uh, I've gotten a long way believing they're opportunities. So have a great day. Good. Thanks for sharing. And for everyone else listening in, I hope you have a great rest of the week doing the work that matters to you. Until next time, take care. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and visit workmatters.com. And if you have a question or suggestion for a future topic for the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. So keep growing as a leader and doing the work that matters to you. Until next time. Mm -hmm.